Hi, and thanks for stepping through that paranormal door with NPI Radio. I'm your host, Daryl Pearson. This evening, we have another great guest with us. But before I get into that, where I'm doing this interview is really unique. And it's got a lot of history with NPI, which I'll get into in a few minutes. I am doing this interview at the very historic Vancouver Police Museum. And anybody that knows about the museum, they know that it has a history. Not only a paranormal history, but a fabulous history in the city itself. I'm not going to tell you a lot about the history, because there's a person here that knows a lot more about it than I do. So this evening, I'd like to introduce our guest. Her name is Whitney Brennan. She is the educational program lead at the Vancouver Police Museum. Whitney, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Daryl. Whitney, I mean, a lot of people know about the Vancouver Police Museum. They know it exists. Maybe a lot of people know some of the history, but there's a lot of people out there that don't. And I've got a lot of things to touch base with you today. But the one thing maybe you could you could do for us, just to, to get this whole thing booted off, is give us a quick little history on the Vancouver Police Museum, kind of where it began, where its origins were, and kind of where it stands now. Absolutely. So the museum itself only started in 1986, but the building's history goes back to 1932. Uh, and it was originally built to house the coroner services, as well as the city analyst forensic um, analyst laboratory. So when it was built in 32, um, was kind of uh, an interesting way that it came about because there hadn't existed anything forensic related in Vancouver, let alone on the west coast of Canada in the 30s. And so when it got built, it was actually the largest and most technologically advanced forensic facility in North America. So that's a really kind of pioneering part of its forensic history. Now what was really unique about the coroner services that they put on um, the top floor of the building, which is now occupied by the museum's exhibit spaces, is they put not only the coroner's courtroom, so the legal proceedings of death investigation, but they put it next to the city morgue. And that's something that you would never really expect. And the way that I really enjoy talking about the spaces of the museum is how those historic spaces were utilized during um, the time that the courtroom and the morgue were active. So that was used from 1932 until 1980. And there were instances where um, certain coroners would have the jury have the opportunity to view the body of the deceased. Oh, that's just not something that you see <laughs> in, a, in a court nowadays. Unheard of, right? And, and not really practical. There would be no reason for a jury in a, in a death inquiry to go to the morgue. It would be in a totally separate facility. Um, like in Vancouver, you know, the morgue's at the hospitals. It's just also just not appropriate. So super unique from when this building was used and how they actually, yeah, utilize the spaces of morgue and courtroom. And so those were used up until 1980. Um, I believe in the 48 years that the morgue was active, about 20,000 bodies came through here. Oh, well, we'll get back to <laughs> uh, I do have some questions relevant to that. That is uh, incredible. And I mean, I knew some of the history, um, but that aspect of it, actually, I never <laughs> did know. And uh, just for uh, everybody out there, our listeners, MPI has actually been investigating the Vancouver Police Museum for almost 10 years, as long as we've been around. So when you learn something new after 10 years, it's like, okay, there's always something new in this building. That's incredible. So you're the educational lead. That must be really unique. Like, as you said, educating the people, but you're just, you're not just educating your average person, you're ever educating the students. You're educating all the way down to, what, 12-year-olds? Pre-K. Pre-K. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm shocked, I mean, really, to come into something like this establishment that has this history. And honestly, you got to admit, although it's incredible, it does come across to some people as a little bit gruesome. Absolutely, and not necessarily the most child-friendly of content, which is, for me, part of the really awesome thing about working here, but also one of its greatest challenges is how do you make something like the history and process of death investigation appropriate and interesting to children, right? I'm not here to scare them. 
um, on other than when we do ghost tours at Halloween, which is kind of our favorite time of year, the rest of the year, and and normally I try to keep things not sensational. This was a place where science was done, right? This was where investigations were done. To my knowledge, and to I believe most people who have worked here, no one has ever died in this building. So I, that's how I, you know, I try and present it to kids, particularly as a safe place to explore questions related to death. Okay, we'll get back to that in just a second because there's another aspect of that I want to touch on. So folks, I mean, you've heard a little bit about Vancouver Blues Museum and what Whitney does, but something that I found a, a little astonishing, so we're going to get a, a bit more into the history of Whitney herself. She has a Bachelor and a Master of Arts in the Arts History. I mean, that's that's wild. I mean, what prompted you to get into the art scene? Now, just to allow you guys to know, not only is it the, uh, the Bachelor and Masters of Arts, I mean, she's got writings published in Luna Magazine, um, C Magazine, is it Sad Magazine? Sad Magazine, yeah. Um, you know, and she's got a really unique aspect in the arts, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, because when I read about it and I listened to it, and that's a hint, it kind of went, huh? And I listened to this and I went, wow, this is actually really cool. Never thought about this. So I'm going to let her describe that a little bit. But let's get back to, you know, what prompted you to get into the arts history at thing? Because I know you're also the director of the Arts Assembly. Yeah, so, yeah, co-director. Um, how did oh that gosh. all happen? How did that happen? Um, well, with, I mean, what's something that's probably seems a little left field from what I do now, aside from working at the museum, I do work in the arts. Um, I actually went to Massage Therapy College right after high school and um, did a one-year diploma program in that. I was then working um, in, in spas in Vancouver and really enjoying the work, um, but it's hard work. <laughs> and I'd always, I mean, at that point I was 18, fresh out of high school, and I was always kind of thinking about going back to school but I didn't really know what I wanted to do academically. Um, I thought about pursuing writing, which is what I do a lot anyway. But um, I actually found out about these um, travel abroad programs through Langara. Okay. And you could earn credits that are then transferable. And I was like, even if I don't want to do art, which is what the, the courses were, it was all art history, full semester abroad through Europe. It's like, even if I don't continue with art history, I've never been to Europe at that point, can get to travel, plus earn some university credits that I could use later. Once I got there, I just fell in love with it and didn't realize, be like, oh, the exams in art history are like, at least at a undergraduate level, are here's an image, tell us who, what, when, and the oh. context of this image. And I was like, but you're showing me the picture? I just have to talk about the picture? And it just, it was, not just easy, I, I enjoyed it. And so I just fell in love with being able to take classes and sit in the Louvre and sit in these amazing basilicas in, in Italy. And um, I did another program like that through Langara uh, that was just in Italy about art history. And then I transferred to UBC, got my bachelor's and kind of went straight into my master's. Wow, that is incredible. I mean, I, I, I got to admit, I. I've never traveled all the world, but I have been in Italy, so I do know the art. I've looked at it. I mean, I don't, maybe have, I wouldn't have the same perspective that you do, but yeah, I was, I was wowed by that art as well, and just the history there is fabulous, yeah. so I can understand that. So how did that all come to leading you into the, leading you into the Arts Assembly? So with Arts Assembly, yeah, I started volunteering um, with a number of galleries and, and organizations while I was in school. Uh, within the arts, that's a huge way to gain experience, but also to make connections that can lead you to positions in the future. And I knew at that point that I wanted to work um, in the arts. My whole family's in Vancouver. I wanted to be able to stay in Vancouver, so I knew I had to make that community for myself. And so through that, I started volunteering. Um, during my master's degree, I started volunteering on the board of directors with Arts Assembly, uh, became very good friends with everyone on the board and uh, their uh, founder and director at the time, Mike and Waxer. Um, at, after I'd been on the board for about a year, she asked me to join her as co-director. And she then promptly moved to Toronto. <laughs> 
So we operate as a bi-coastal organization based out of Vancouver and Toronto now. Um, and that's been going really well. So I've been on, I've been on as co-director since 2019. That's really cool. I read a bit about the arts assembly and it really touches bases worldwide with artists, doesn't it? Yeah, um, we're, you know, based on or originated out of Vancouver. Um, we're now starting to do projects with artists across Canada, but we've previously partnered with organizations in Turkey and in France. And so we're, yeah, we're looking to continue branching out, but our, our focus has been on Canadian artists. You guys really don't, do you, you don't really work, do you work with the mainstay artists or is it more up and coming people? Oh, we work with a lot of emerging artists. Our, our focus is on supporting artistic research. So in whatever kind of process or um, phase that that's in, um, we really try to work with artists at, at all stages, at whatever level they're coming from. Um, our current uh, Cross Canada project, the remote research residency, we're working with six artists across the country of varying levels of their career. Some have, you know, no exhibition experience, no residency experience, um, and that's almost better <laughs> in a way as you really get to work with people in this kind of um, nuanced and exploratory phase of their practice and they're really finding their, finding their stride and finding things that interest them and being a part of that is just a joy. Well, that's very cool. I mean, it, it, it's great to have that, that sport of an area, but I find it interesting, you know, you kind of went from that to where you are now with the Vancouver Police Museum. <laughs> right. I mean, you came into this, I'm sure you didn't come in as the educational leader. I did. But you I did. did. Yeah. Um, I actually, I applied for um, an internship in the archives, being, I was just finishing my master's and I wanted a job in a museum. And I actually didn't really know a lot about the police museum before I started working here. And as soon as I found out about it, I was like, oh my gosh, why have I not been here forever? Um, I've always been kind of a, a true crime fanatic and also loved museums. And I was like, this is, this is supposed to be perfect. But I just wanted any position. That was the position that they were posting. Um, and in the end, they didn't know at the time they interviewed me that their education person was leaving. Oh, wow. Okay. So I interviewed for the archive job, um, and they were like, actually, we'd like you to interview for our programming job. And that's how I got the job, so I've been here almost three years. It's not almost, it's almost like it was um, destined to just turn Totally, out totally. Favor, wasn't it? <laughs> that is really incredible. You've already told us a short history of the, of the VPM, and just for the folks out there, I refer to the Vancouver Police Museum as the VPM, so if you hear me say it, that's just what it is. When you got in here, how long, how many years have you been here now? Almost three years. So three years. And in three years, when did you start to get, and I have to ask this, when did you start getting involved in the ghost end of things? Well, that kind of happened pretty soon after I started. Um, as I, I think I started officially in September of 2018. And so right after that is October, which mm. is like the best month at the museum. <laughs> Halloween is just all around our thing and uh, we were partnering with NPI on ghost tours and so that was kind of my first um, exposure <laughs> to uh, the the paranormal side of what the museum has to offer and they were I mean it's our most popular program all year round it's just such a hit and it's become my most favorite thing to do because you get to bring people through they not only learn about the history of the building which like it still surprises me people will visit, walk through the entire museum, and still come and ask us, like, was this a police station? Or, like, they still haven't grasped the history of the building. Mm -hmm. um, so they actually get to learn that because we give the tours and NPI shares some of their findings. So they get to learn a lot more about the building, and I think it gives them a much deeper appreciation for the full spectrum <laughs> of stories that we have here. That's interesting, and, and uh, we'll tell you guys a little bit more kind of about MPI's history with the Vancouver Police Museum shortly. Now, I know I, I told you I'd get back to your educational thing. When you're dealing with, you know, the kids coming in and they're learning these aspects, and I know you said you're not going to scare them, and nobody is, of course, have you noticed, like, do they all just take it kind of in stride? Are they really engrossed in it? Or is there always that bit of apprehension around it? I mean, how are they 
How are they handling though this kind of stuff? Because you are in a morgue. I mean, yeah. it is. It it really depends. I mean, there's all kinds. There's some kids who just like they're not okay with it. I don't force them to be around anything. Um, I just kind of leave it open if they want to ask questions. There's other parts of the museum that are not a morgue that they can explore. Uh, and occasionally I do get kids who are fascinated and just enthralled by the idea of pathology and, you know, invest using forensic science and they just like, they want to know more about it. So of course that I just, I lean into that with them a little bit more, but. When you do the forensic science stuff, and I notice you have various events and I will be asking you to list those upcoming events off, but when you do those forensic uh, things with the kids and stuff like that, Kind of give us, give us a bit of an example of what you did. So really trying to focus on the science side of it, right? But also the, I guess, um, limited credibility that we can give to a lot of forensic evidence, right? Uh, the programs that we do, for example, there's two um, forensic investigations um, activities. There's a break and enter and a kidnapping. And so uh, the break and enters for like ages 10 to 13, the kidnapping is like for 14 and up. Um, they're structured similarly in that there's stations of evidence that they have to look at, fingerprints, boot prints, fiber, um, chromatography, stuff like that. So they have to look at each station of evidence and then build a case, mm -hmm. right? And so the um, important part that I try to emphasize to them is that you're not deciding who's guilty, right? As investigators, you are looking at the evidence. What does the evidence tell you could have happened? Oh, so it's not about innocence or guilt. No, because that's part of, um, you know, it's part of the justice system. It's part of the criminal investigation. However, it is not CSIs, right, crime scene investigators or analysts who determine guilt or, um, mm -hmm. you know, who committed what crime. They look at the evidence. This is what the evidence tells us. Who could have been there? This kind of evidence tells us time or, you know, there's no way that the way this fingerprint was means that this person pulled the trigger or anything like that. Like they really try and give the logic behind the evidence that they found. And then the next challenge is they might be called to be an expert witness in court. So I try to also demystify the idea of the things that we see on TV, the way that, you know, investigations are portrayed and be like, as an investigator, all you have to look at is what you see in evidence. You can't speculate, you can't guess, you can't be like, oh, but he looks guilty. Because sometimes kids try to say that, they'll look at my pictures of suspects and be like, oh, but he looks, you know, he looks like the guy. Be like, but what does the evidence tell you? So I try and really break it down, and maybe that sounds more boring, but it's also getting them to look at how, you know, trustworthy evidence can be or how misleading it can be. Mm -hmm. You could have all the evidence in the world that points to a suspect. You still have to convince a judge or a jury. That's true. It could still get thrown out. It could still not go the way that the evidence suggests it should go. Now, do you find that the kids doing it nowadays um, all have that preconceived notion kind of toward what they think should be? Um, sometimes. Some of them, you know, I try and really instill be like, you're only going by the evidence. Some of them do want to make stories <laughs> um, or kind of elaborate on what the evidence is telling them. But I think for the most part, kids are a lot more grounded in reality, um, particularly with, you know, how accessible information, not just around crime, but around, um, you know, truth and, you know, fake news and stuff like that. There's so much information available out there that I think they're a lot better at putting the pieces together themselves and, and ruling out information that's, um, that's not relevant. Must be interesting not having the parents put their input in. Uh, yeah, well, when we do the activities, so one of the things we had to do during COVID was kind of open up um, our audiences to our education programs. As usually before, they were only available to uh, schools and day camps and stuff like that. So with COVID, I opened them up to friends and family. Oh, okay. So now we have friends and family forensics. Uh, families can come in and book one of our education programs. They get a short tour with me, and then they solve crime. So it is actually really interesting seeing how parents and kids interpret the evidence, what arguments they make. Hmm. 
I see an upcoming adventure for the MPI <laughs> Definitely. Time. That would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. So if you're out there and you're interested, hey, check this out. It'd be a lot of fun to do. And they have multiple uh, activities here. Um, actually, speaking of activities, there's something I will ask you about, you know, the people coming in and the reputation that we've kind of propagated even further as far as the the activity here at the at the VPM goes but before we do I want to step back a little bit as you guys remember uh, Whitney has a, a very uh, strong uh, history with the arts and history and stuff like that but there was something that I noticed she had done and I had actually never heard of the term before and I'm like wow and I probably heard it a lot of you probably have but she does something, what she calls, sound art. Now, again, I'd never heard of this, and I listened to a few of her recordings. Rather interesting. Um, matter of fact, they have gone out on CIT Radio and Framework Radio in the UK, which I'm like, wow. I mean, they've been around. Whitney, what the heck is sound art? <laughs> wow, okay. Um, yeah, sound art is in I guess the simplest way artistic expression that comes through sound so that can look like narrative right it can include poetry or some sort of storytelling um, it can include drone sounds drone music is kind of its own genre it's not what I do but it's its own thing um, there's like ambient sounds there's um, works that's more like binaural um, which if you listen to like ASMR videos and stuff like that, there's videos that tap into the different frequencies mm -hmm. um, that your brain waves respond to. Oh, wow. There's a whole science behind a lot of it. The stuff that I'm really interested in involves field recording. Mm -hmm. So just going out into the world, it doesn't have to be a field. Uh, it doesn't have to be nature, but capturing the sounds uh, with a recorder. And um, what I like to do is kind of manipulate those soundscapes um, kind of augment them a little bit and create uh, more of an auditory surreality. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's very uh, unique way of, of applying um, the arts field. I mean, it's, um, it's interesting. Is this, I mean, do you find a, a lot of people are doing this? It's, you know, it's a genre that's it's harder to tap into in a way. It's it's a little bit harder to share on social media because it's just audio mm -hmm. and our world is so visual. So yes. when I make a work, I don't have like a poster or um, you know a set image that goes along with that work. Um, hang, hang on guys, hang on. Okay, we had some tapping, so just ignore the tapping in the background, but we're okay to continue with this. Yeah, so it's it, it's kind of, there's different kind of camps of, of sound art. So depending on kind of what work you're into, there's different communities for it. Um, the electronic music scene is a really big thing in Vancouver, mm -hmm. more so than field recording. Uh, field recording as a genre is really big in the UK. Um, they have a lot more art centers for it and festivals and, and stuff like that all around the UK. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a really interesting world to be a part of because when you listen to sound work, you're, to me, I feel like you're instantly transported to a different place. Even if you're not familiar with the sounds, um, if you listen to a soundscape of a different city, you're hearing traffic, you might mm -hmm. be hearing a language that you haven't heard before, you could be hearing, you know, vendors on the street, traffic lights, sirens that don't sound like the sirens in your city. Well, people are very, I mean, honestly, they're very narrowly um, orientated when they're walking down the street. We don't hear everything, we don't see anything, but when you listen back, it's much like our EVP recordings. Absolutely. You listen back, it's like, You hear so well, much, hear yeah. Hmm. So it, it changes your perspective also of like, when you are in a, a, a different city or you are sitting somewhere and if you just like fine-tune your hearing a little bit if you just pay attention with your ears mm -hmm. to where you are it really changes how you can appreciate your surroundings very true very true 
Well, for those of you that are interested, Whitney, where can they find some of these recordings to listen to? Um, yeah, I have a SoundCloud. Uh, so it's uh, soundcloud.com uh, backslash Whitney dash Brennan. I think that's what it is. <laughs> um, it's also on my Instagram. Excellent. Okay, well, they, there you go. You can look for Whitney and uh, listen to some of these recordings and, uh, hey, get back to her. Let her know what you think. Um, it's really kind of cool. I've listened to a few of them. Um, last night I even did, and I'm like, hmm. So it, it's, yeah, I, I can't say any more than that. It's kind of cool. But with these sound recordings, it must give you a bit of a, I mean, is there a bit of a wow factor the first time you ever heard an EVP that was caught? here at the Vancouver Police Museum? Yeah, I mean, it, it really, it added that whole other layer of what sound captures, right? Not only like when, when I'm using a recorder and just like walking through a forest, you can hear things so much more clearly, but when you listen to an EVP, you listen, you're hearing things that weren't heard at all at the time they were taken, most often. I think you get those yeah. a lot more often than ones that you hear at the time. Absolutely. Yeah, so it adds that whole other dimension to what sound picks up that our ears or our eyes, right, all our other senses don't perceive when we're in a space. So let's let's go back to the very first time, you know, you listened to one of our reveals and you heard that for the very first time. What went through your head? Well, the first thing is you have to hear them with headphones. <laughs> that, that is true. That makes most of them. Most of them. It makes a world of difference because I know trying to play it. I think the first time we tried to listen, we just like played it through the speakers on a computer, and it's just there's because like the ghost box and stuff like they make a lot of noise themselves. Mm -hmm. It's harder to isolate that sound, but with headphones on, to me it was like unmistakable. You know, not even knowing like what I'm supposed to be listening to, you do hear something that's you know out of sync with the rest of what the the soundscape of what your recorder's picking up. What should be there. What should be there, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, did that experience change your outlook walking through the door into the Vancouver Police Museum? Well, I can't say that I've ever experienced anything personally. I don't discredit anything that has been experienced here because just because I don't experience it doesn't mean it's not there or could be there. But yeah, it made me, you know, the, the first thing I almost think is like, well, if they are here, they should, you know, help out, you know, help me close up at the end of the night, get the lights in the morgue, do something, contribute. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the first thing I thought of. But it, no, it made me think, be like, well, yeah, why not? With that being said, we're going to take a little bit of a break here and we'll be back soon with NPI Radio and Whitney Brennan after this and discuss a little more about these EVPs and check out some of her favorites. Northern Paranormal Investigations is a nonprofit organization located in the Lower Mainland of British Columbia, Canada. If you are experiencing unexplained phenomena, you can contact us through our website at npibc.ca or email us at mpi.bc.ca at gmail.com. Again, the email address is npi.bc.ca at gmail.com. Hey everybody, this time around on the intermission, you're going to hear frogs and crickets at the farm, Rio de Janeiro. And I hum because I can't remember the words. These are a few bits of Whitney Brennan's sound art. Have a listen and enjoy.
Hi, and welcome back to NPI Radio. Tonight, we're here at the Vancouver Police Museum with our guest, Whitney Brennan. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun so far. I did say that we were going to talk about some of the EVP we've caught over uh, a period of years here. And I did ask Whitney to check out our recordings and pick her top three. So on that note, Whitney, 10 years of investigation. So starting at your number three, what is it? Well, I think it's, it's funny because it's one of the ones that I think sometimes shocks people more. But it's my third favorite because I think the ones that haven't happened in the basement are actually more interesting. Whereas I know the ones that you guys have often picked up downstairs are sometimes spookier. Well, maybe. <laughs> right. Okay. So that's always my, that's always been my impression from both what you guys have collected here and other people who are sensitive, who have come through the museum. They've never expressed any kind of malicious energy here. No, so I, I had to kind of comfort our, our new interns on that as well as like, <laughs> you were coming today, um, like, is this place haunted? And I was like, well, activity doesn't mean it's mean. Um, so that to me has always been the, the ones that come across as seemingly mean are not necessarily my most favorite because I don't think like and I think this is how you've explained it, too, is they're kind of like maybe somebody's just playing a joke or pretending to be somebody they're not. That has come up, yes. Yeah, so I think my third favorite then is the one that says Lucifer. Oh, <laughs> the, the ghost box. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, which one, though? There was two of them. Oh, um, I think the one that I was thinking of is it's like, can you tell us your name? And then it comes across pretty clear that it says Lucifer. Mm -hmm. But it just, it doesn't seem like, I, just, I don't actually think Lucifer is in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> well, to kind of clarify up for everybody, um, we had caught Lucifer twice um, on the ghost box. It once was down in the overflow morgue on the third floor down, and once was on the lab level. We really couldn't explain why we got that term. We thought, is somebody playing tricks on us? And literally my whole group went, we hope somebody's playing tricks on us. And if that's the case, we really have somebody weird that's hanging around this uh, morgue, which probably shouldn't be here. A lot of people kind of listen to that and go, wow, like you did. Um, so, guys, have a listen to it now. And, well, you tell us. Here it is. Lucifer. Can you tell us your name, please? There you go, Lucifer. Now, to give people a little bit of a heads up, first thing people think of is, you know, the guy down below. But we found out that the show, TV show, Lucifer, was also filmed here at various points in time. So, did a spirit miss it and want it back and that's what they were saying? Well, we'll leave that up to you. So Whitney, that was a real cool one for sure. And I honestly thought that wouldn't be in the number three position, but apparently I was wrong. So if that's the case, what's your number two? So number two, so I guess my, my top two ones have to do with spaces in the museum, not just because I'm in them every day, but because I can, I can see the connection um, and I can see maybe where they come from. And so the, the second one is um, one that you guys didn't get you got it before I started working here, but it was one that connects to an exhibit that's in the courtroom. Ah. Do you guess, can you guess which one I think it is? Well, there's been so many, honestly, <laughs> I'm at a loss on this one, and that's strange for me. Usually I can pick them out. It has to do with a, uh, a non-human. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, would you like to say what it was? Oh, sure. So the way that I was told the story was that the NPI folks were conducting an investigation in the courtroom, as you do, uh, and a name had come across, or an introduction had come across uh, the ghost box, 
Um, and I believe it was saying, I'm Charlie. And as usual, when, when you guys have gotten a name or something identifies itself, you check with us, you know, does this name mean anything? Um, who is Charlie? Do you guys, is there a Charlie who works here? Uh, was there ever a Charlie who worked here? And the staff at the time, uh, since I didn't work here yet, were like, well, uh, kind of. There's a, a mannequin horse in the courtroom that's now part of an exhibit on the mounted unit of the VPD and, and riots. Um, and from whenever, times ago, they had nicknamed this horse Charlie. So they're like, yeah, something is named Charlie in the courtroom. So we found, yes, we found out that Charlie was nick the nickname for the horse. Um, now, I mean, that in its own right is flipping cool because we had no idea that it was named Charlie. Um, at the time, it was like, okay, who's Charlie? Uh, just as Whitney had said, we were kind of, well, what the heck? When we did find out, it, 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 it blew us away, number one, that somebody upstairs here, and I'm saying something that was out of our visual range, so some spirit, knew that they referred to the horse as Charlie. Now, I'm pretty sure it wasn't Charlie talking to us. So who told us the name? Well, the other aspect of the name Charlie, or that I know of that we named the horse after, was an officer named Charlie Park. And he was a VPD officer around 1908, I believe. Uh, we have a photograph in the stairwell. He's with the bicycle. So his name was Charlie. So Charlie Park could very well be hanging around. Quite possibly. So maybe they were telling us the horse was nicknamed after Charlie. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's moved up to the number two position for sure. <laughs> very interesting. Well, guys, listen. We're going to play that for you. Have a listen to it. And again, you tell us. Pretty cool. Here it is. Charlie. There you go. We couldn't explain it either. Still can't, but definitely some evidence leading to why we got the name. That's pretty cool. Well, folks, now it comes down to the number one EVP. Whitney? So this one is number one, maybe not because it's the most sensational, it's not a voice, but I connect to it because at the time, one of the times that we were doing the ghost tours and we were in the autopsy suite, telling the story and explaining some of the uh, some of the visitors that had been through physically, been through the space, um, were often younger. And as the coroner services investigates any, uh, any unexplained, unattended, um, mysterious circumstances of death, um, as well as the deaths of minors. Mm -hmm. So part of the story was that, or the story that led to, you know, the true crime story that we tell as part of that part of the tour is the Babes in the Woods case. The EVP that you guys share is of some footsteps. Yeah, the footsteps. Now it's my favorite. That was in the morgue or the autopsy because we got two sets. The the one I believe, or at least the connection that I have to this EVP is the one in the autopsy suite because of the tiled floor. Mm -hmm. The EVP that's really particular to that space with headphones on. Remember, you need headphones to hear this so well. Is uh, that that sounds like bare feet. Yeah, and I was just going to ask you, what's the creepiest aspect of that? Because when we're doing the ghost tours, we do tell that story. And for you out there, just in case you didn't catch the connection, if you're in the morgue or in the autopsy room and you're wearing bare feet, then where were you when your body was in the autopsy? You were probably on the table. Yeah, we thought the same thing. And if you listen to other EVPs, there is a little girl we do believe, or at least a young voice that says hi to somebody. So there's those as well. 
Definitely a number one for sure. It blew us away when we heard it, and it's not the first time we've heard the footsteps. Very cool, very cool. I'll tell you what, guys. We're gonna play that for you now. Have a listen to the footsteps. And I would suggest you listen at least four times, and then let us know what you think. Or you can come visit and let Whitney know what you think. And she can show you the area. Anyway, here are the footsteps. Listen carefully. There you go, pitter-patter. A few footsteps for you. Hope you heard it, but you know what? I just found out that there's a story, a little bit more of a story tied to that. Whitney. So like I said before, nobody that I've talked to has ever experienced anything malicious or ill toward um, in their experiences with paranormal in the museum, which has always made me feel more comfortable because I do have to work here. Um, but during one of our ghost tours, we were in the autopsy suite. Now this was before COVID, so people were, there was a much larger group and people were spaced out around the entire space. And there was a woman standing kind of in the corner by um, the incinerator, which was not uh, cremation. It was <laughs> for like rags and disposing of debris. Mm -hmm. She's standing in the corner um, by the display of autopsy organs and there's no one behind her. And at the beginning of the tour, she'd identified herself as a sensitive. And so whatever, I didn't think anything of it. We get back to the autopsy suite. Um, we've told the story, we've shared, or you guys have shared the EVP. I've told the story of the Babes in the Woods case, an unsolved murder case from the 1950s. And as we're getting ready to collect the group and, and go downstairs to the lab, which is another amazing aspect of the ghost tours, the only time that people get to see the lab is during these tours. She comes up to me as we're making our way down and she says, you know, I, I, uh, I think I just had, you know, an experience in this autopsy suite while you were sharing the story of the babes in the woods. And I was like, okay, tell me everything. And she said she was standing in the corner. She knew there was no one behind her. And as I'm telling the story and we're explaining that, you know, many children who died in unattended or unexplained ways might have had their autopsies here. She said she felt a little tug on the back of her jacket. And I was like, huh, well, that's kind of interesting. She's like, it didn't feel mean or it wasn't trying to get me out of the way. It was just trying to get my attention. And I was like, okay, well, what do kids do when they want to get your attention, right? They'll come up and they'll tug on your sleeve or they'll tap you. And she was like, yeah, it just felt like that. It just felt like they were, they were saying hi, that they were just with me in the room. Wow. And yeah, it definitely lends to the footsteps almost like for sure. Definitely. And the fact that we've honestly, um, I mean, many of, the, many of the team members of MPI have seen flashes out of the corner of their eye and people can say, well, you know, that's this or that's that. But every time I ask them, what'd you see? I saw something small, quick. Um, I swear to God, I just saw a small child. Okay, and it happens more often than not. Um, why he or she won't show themselves, I don't know. But that brings up a, a question which you had mentioned now a couple of times, and that's the babes in the woods. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the updates yes. and what's happening with that case. How do you feel about all that? I think it's exciting. I think it's a small, perhaps, it's a, it's a more public example of some of the advances in forensics that are going to shed more light on cases that had previously kind of reached the extent of possible analysis at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that still happens with cases, you know, from years back that they, they won't process certain very sensitive, um, like biological evidence because they know if they test it then, they lose any future chance of testing it more accurately in the future. Ah, okay. So for, the fact that we can, day. yeah, exactly. So the fact that we can do this with, you know, skeletal remains from the fifties, or mm -hmm. I mean, from the forties, really, they were discovered in the fifties is pretty incredible. And I, I hope it brings, you know, some peace to, to the case as well as perhaps some answers. It's hard, hard to say after that long, there was so few leads to go on at the time. Now, do you feel that if they do solve this case, it takes one case out of our repertoire for the ghost tours? 
Oh, no, I don't think so. I think the interest in how the case was still investigated and the, um, you know, this happens all the time with murder investigations. People come out of the woodwork mm-hmm. to be connected to it in some morbid way. I think that still rings true in, into, you know, how important it is to look at evidence and how misleading evidence can be, right? You know, for 50 years, they, until 1998, they thought they had a boy and a girl skeletal remains, and that wasn't proven wrong until 1998. Two boys, right? It's two boys, yeah. That is really cool. I don't even know what to say to y'all. I mean, you've, you've heard some of the evidence. You can find it on our, on our, on our website. Uh, and have a look at most of the evidence. I don't have it all up there, but um, some of the best stuff's there. One other thing, I guess, um, as we head into near the end of the show, is the amount or number of items that are stored at the, at the museum. And I just want to clarify a few things. Number one, I mean, I know it's true. Um, now, I don't remember if it was from Ocala or where it was from, but you guys actually have an authentically used hanging hood? We do, yes. Uh, it was from Ocala. It was, eh? Um, with the history of that, they really don't know how many people use that hood? Oh, no idea. Now, I've seen it. Um, everybody, I can tell you, it gives you an awfully damn creepy feeling. Um, another one that came to my attention was somebody said that you have a skeleton here. Um, an, an, an entire skeleton? That's what I heard. Oh, I haven't seen it, if we do. Um, but that would, you know, if we do have any remains, which includes the, the remains from the display in the autopsy suite that aren't currently on exhibit, mm-hmm. um, anything like that is kept very, very secure. Yeah. Uh, anything that is human remains, of course, has to be kept um, very in very special uh, climate controlled and you know secured, locked away. So if we did have something like that, it has not come to my attention. Oh, well, that's odd. Hmm. Okay, I'll have to I'll have to see if we can discover the truth around that. Um, but that's what I heard. So if you guys hear that tale, it's still up for debate. The other thing here is, do you think that you know, the, like you guys actually have jail cell doors from Ocala here. They're authentic jail cell doors. Do you know what jail cells they actually came from? I don't. You don't no, know. we have, there's some more down in the basement, I believe as well, but I don't know if they came from cells of significance or historical interest, um, or if they were just what was Given. I know a lot of workers, um, having talked to people who previously worked at Ocala when it was operational, when it shut down, they were kind of each given um, ceremoniously like a brick from the prison. Oh, wow. Um, so I believe we have, we have a brick, we might have a couple. Um, so I don't know if they did a similar kind of thing with a lot of the other objects. There's not, they don't necessarily connect to them in the same way that we might think there's some kind of significance to them. But we never know. We never know. So next, yeah. <laughs> next time you're here, ladies and gentlemen, take a look at these cells. You never know what might have been attached that happened to come along. Maybe one day MPI or somebody else will be able to find out. Upcoming events for the Vancouver Police Museum. What have you got upcoming? Well, summer is going to be probably pretty quiet, uh, just adhering to the, the ongoing restrictions, even as things open up, we're trying to just be sensitive, um, not just to the capacity of our building, but also to the neighborhood as well, and mm-hmm. give people a bit more space um, down here and not trying to have too many like large events. Um, but of course, in the fall, we kind of amp back up with our programming, uh, like movies in the morgue, always super popular. Right. Tickets will be uh, released again in August, as usual. Same with ghost tours. I mean, October is really our program heavy, <laughs> our program heavy month. Well, there you go, folks. There is uh, some exciting stuff coming up, and there's always new and uh, new programs, educational programs, always coming up. So, if you're interested, you know, touch base with the Vancouver Police Museum, ask to talk to Whitney, and uh, or check it online, and she would be happy to talk to you about it. 
All right, Whitney. Well, thank you very much for your time and stuff like that. Um, all the information has been great. The chat with you has been fantastic. The fact that we did it right here in the Vancouver Police Museum, I just can't say any more than that, folks. Come on by and visit. Um, again, it's been a pleasure. Anytime you want to come back on the show, you're welcome to it. You know, can you pass along just before we head off here the uh, website and contact information for the Vancouver Police Museum place? Definitely. Yeah, you can find us at vancouverpolicemuseum.ca. Our Instagram and Twitter is at policemuseum. And if you want to email us, you can email us at info at vancouverpolicemuseum.ca. And uh, yeah, you can ask for me if you have any programming questions or um, I also do private tours. So if you ever want to do that, happy to talk true crime and as much paranormal as I know of, <laughs> if that's of interest. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for having me, Daryl. Excellent. It's been a lot of fun, Whitney. Thank you so much. And for everybody out there, thanks again for joining NPI Radio. You can now close that paranormal door. Thanks for coming. Good night.